Welcome to Real Wealth, Real Health, the show that empowers you with insights, information, and inspiration to achieve your version of financial wellness. Learn how to balance living a full life today with planning for the future. This podcast is brought to you by Alpha Investing, a real estate-centric private capital network that provides exclusive investment opportunities to its members. And now, here are your hosts, Adapia Dorico and Daniel Coca. Hello and welcome back to another episode of Real Wealth, Real Health. This is Ada Piedrico. Our conversation today is with Mr. Jim Richardson. Jim is a 35 plus year commercial real estate veteran who's had stints at CBRE and more recently at Alexandria Real Estate Equities, listed on the New York Stock Exchange under the symbol ARE. He served there as president and continues as a board member. Alexandria Real Estate has grown exponentially during his time with the company, from a startup to an S&P 500 REIT with a total market cap exceeding $20 billion. Personally, he is an active investor in real estate, in technology, and e-commerce companies spanning various product types and business configurations. His primary investment objectives are to be both opportunistic and strategic in portfolio development. Jim, welcome to the podcast. Thank you so much for taking some time to speak with us today. Well, thank you. It's wonderful to be here. Yeah, it was um, when we first met, when I came to San Francisco with our partner, Fark from Alpha Investing, and I, and I met you, your experience and your overview and everything that you've accomplished in your life was so impressive to me and especially your investing philosophy. So I was really excited um, that you agreed to be on the podcast and we can dive into some of those aspects of what you've learned in your life professionally and also personally. Great. Great. Um, so I think that, that usually like the best way to start is if you could give our listeners an overview of um, what you do, what you did, and just like a quick overview about uh, your experience specifically um, as an institutional real estate investor. Sure. So my uh, professional career has been 100% in real estate. Um, notwithstanding the past 10 years, I've deviated uh, into some other areas. Um, so I started right out of college uh, in the commercial real estate brokerage realm. Uh, began with what was then Coldwell Banker, which had a number of different iterations during the time I was there. It became uh, C.B. Richard Ellis, Coldwell Banker Commercial, went public, private. But during that 15-year period is really where I kind of cut my teeth or learned um, the commercial real estate industry from the client representation perspective. So during that evolution, kind of an instrumental part of it was, uh, so I'm here in the Bay Area, and when you start right out of school and know very little, the opportunities that are available to you are kind of de minimis. So you have to pick an area to focus on. And at that time, the early 80s, I focused in the biotech industry, which was really in its infancy. Genentech uh, up here in the Bay Area was probably five years old at that time. They were the pioneer. Uh, and so there were not a lot of people spending time and focusing there. And so it was. Um, in, in a sense, low-hanging fruit, although uh, fruit that most didn't like the taste of at the time. So I started there um, and was fascinated by the industry. The, the people that I engaged with every day were, were focused on changing the world. Uh, they had a passion that you just don't typically see, and I was really drawn to that. And it was also a small network. So it was, a you know, at that time, a lot of the people that were um, kind of running that industry were young, passionate, and uh, again, a part of a small network. And so as they proceeded in their careers and had success, I was able to evolve with them and grow with them uh, and then uh, ultimately represent them as their companies uh, became bigger and bigger. And in that process, it became clear to me that there was a real capital void that 
absent the ability to fill it was going to uh, retard the ability for them to uh, really pursue their science and solve these these kind of life changing, uh, potentially life changing solutions they were pursuing, and that the primary issue is that these companies were uh, underfunded, uh, mostly venture backed, required very expensive facilities to do their science in, and uh, were in a real estate world at that time with landlords that were reluctant to spend uh, anything beyond a very nominal amount of uh, investment for tenant improvements. So there's a huge funding gap. And so I battled uh, with them to try to help resolve that over time. But essentially this led me into uh, kind of my second second chapter of, of my professional career, which was to, to what was uh, then a startup, Alexandria Real Estate Equities. And so I had been pitching to venture capitalists and other financial res- uh, potential financial resources the need to try to fill this gap and the economic opportunity, and it hadn't gotten very far. So to make a kind of a, a longer story short, uh, encountered these guys as they were uh, evolving this concept to try to fill that gap and um, ultimately left what was then uh, C.B. Richard Ellis and joined Alexandria uh, the month it went public, and at that time, I believe we went public with $175 million and four properties, and then just started this journey, which ultimately now, that company of which, and so I was the president of that company for about a decade. I'm still on the board, uh, but no longer in executive management, but it's evolved now to be the largest, um, the first and largest provider of scientific research space for life sciences industry with about a $23 billion total market cap and, and 25 million square feet of operating uh, property. So there's a lot that went on between then and now um, that maybe we'll get into in various aspects of this. But uh, so, so in essence, my career started uh, in the brokerage realm and I moved to institution, institutional investment side. And one kind of pivotal piece of that for me you know, as it kind of tells you how um, I think I've thought about a lot of things is one of the things that frustrated me about being on the brokerage side was as much as I enjoyed the client base and the process and the variety of each and every day is that you don't make the decisions. You make recommendations and you can be an extraordinary consultant, but at the end of the day, you're not making the final call. And while you don't have the accountability necessarily, there's, uh, for me at least, there was a desire to actually be a principal. And, and so in addition to uh, wanting to help try to solve this bigger issue about this capital gap, I also was interested at that phase of my life in being um, at the table making the decisions. So that's it in a very brief nutshell. It sounds so much to me like a bit of timing but also trust in understanding, like you said, like you started at a time when very few people were willing to take a risk on biotech um, in the 80s. And so much, so much of your experience sounds like you really were using, the word that comes to mind is opportunistic. And this is something that we've talked about, about um, opportunities come with timing, not timing the market, but knowing when an opportunity is available and also seeing a little bit into the future of where it could go. Would that be a fair kind of representation of being able to grasp an opportunity and do something with it? I think it is. I, I, I think um, there's, there's, there's just a life cycle to pretty much everything. And so it's, it's where, it's when that opportunity appears and at what stage you opt in and is in kind of that that part of my story that I described. You know, I didn't opt in at the very outset. Although, if you look at at when anybody else opted in, I guess you would say I did. We were we were kind of the first in, um, but it took um, several years of being frustrated by the lack of ability to uh, compel others to address it that kind of pushed me to go in that direction. And, and you know, I have this kind of theory about entrepreneurship that I, and I, and I think particularly with uh, the, the next generation, uh, my, the next generation subsequent to my own, there's this sense that, that entrepreneurship is uh, this lifestyle, this extraordinary lifestyle that offers autonomy 
and self-expression and purpose and so forth, which certainly it can, uh, but I don't think there's a very clear understanding about how hard it really is. I think, I think most of us have entrepreneurial instincts. We have, we were all kind of on some spectrum and, and we have our own ability to uh, accept and embrace a certain level of risk. But very few people truly will push all the chips in. And, and so that, you know, I don't know what that percentage of the business population is, but I would suggest by less than 10%. And so the key to me and kind of answer your question about, about being opportunistic is where do you fit there and, and at what, where do you feel comfortable embracing that risk? For me, I'm not a pure entrepreneur that does it um, at the front end, but um, I think I did there and can recognize early on where opportunity can, can have significant future payoff and enter at a point where I'm comfortable taking that risk. And, and so that's kind of, that's how I see that. And that's how I see a lot of the investing that I've done. Yeah, one interesting thing that's a little bit of a coincidence that we're having this conversation today. Now, I read this article this morning about Alexandria Real Estate um, being selected by Seattle to build this, you know, 800,000 square foot uh, innovation campus. And so it seems like the things that you are kind of putting in place, you know, at the beginning of your career are you know, now still a big part of what you guys are doing today. Absolutely. And it's been an evolution. You know, the company started by acquiring existing cash flowing assets. And then over the course of time, as the market continued to develop and evolve and our capital resources grew, we became developers. And then ultimately, back in kind of the, the mid-2000s, made a significant strategic structural shift into doing large medical center-oriented uh, campuses, uh, fully amenitized. The, the, the unique thing about the life science industry is there's a real desire for these companies to be in clusters, to be around all of the necessary resources for them to flourish. And that's not true in other industries necessarily. Technology is an example. There's not necessarily a desire to collaborate. In fact, there isn't at the same level. Uh, and so we recognize that. And, and so that evolution happened. And, and you know, as a result, the company's done uh, some major campus development in Cambridge, Massachusetts, in New York City. Um, you mentioned Seattle, San Francisco, all around the Mission Bay Area. So, yeah, there, there has been both an evolution and, and a recognition of the way the industry was evolving and maturing and how to best respond and continue to be fresh and on kind of the, the edge. Jim, in the context of of your of your background, I'm, I want to shift a little bit into how you evaluate your investment opportunities and real estate personally, because clearly an institutional investor has different priorities, prerogatives, different capital base to work with, and you did that for a long time in this industry. How do you think about and evaluate risk? and opportunities uh, for yourself personally in um, what you do today? That's a great question. I think when you're, when you're doing, and again, speaking from my own experience, I guess, when you're doing one thing 24 seven, um, you can be, you, you need to be very focused and, and, and kind of narrow in, in kind of your daily operations. And so what you end up doing is, um, accumulating and aggregating, but not really uh, strategically managing. So from an, at least from an investment perspective. And so that once you uh, step and, and you have different resources, as you mentioned, once you step back from that, you actually have, at least in my case, you have a lot more time to contemplate what your, what your longer term objectives are and then how that's going to impact the way you do what you do every day. And so for me, you know, at that stage, uh, the stage when I kind of shifted from executive management uh, at Alexandria to where I am today, I was still relatively young and, and I had and have a desire to continue to grow and learn. And, and so the biggest tension for me was between investing in things that I really understood and knew and had a predictable outcome and investing in things that I was actually interested in and would learn from. And very quickly learned that investing in things that interest and intrigue you and that you can learn in is a horrible investment thesis if you want to actually have good financial returns. 
Uh, and so for me, it's been more of a blend. Uh, and, and the reason for that is that even though you may be a critical thinker and you can ask great questions um, and dive in deeply, uh, if it's something that is pretty far afield from your own expertise, it's hard to know what questions to ask. And it's easy to make diligence mistakes and and so forth. So that's, so over the course of time, I've, I've come to a place uh, where I'm doing a combination of those things. I'm, I'm continuing to invest in what I understand the best, which is real estate or stuff around the fringes of real estate. And then the stuff that I'm doing that's, that's outside of that, that's intriguing and interesting to me, I'm, I'm limiting those to a select few and diving in deeper um, with them and committing to longer periods of time to, to, to stick with them. And so, you, you know, you, you're the audience, it's an audience of one when you're investing for yourself, essentially. When you're investing institutionally, your stakeholders are obviously uh, different, your resources are different, your uh, strategies and objectives are substantially different. I mean, you're, at least in our case at Alexandria, we had a specific focused niche. Who and how you're competing really is a big part of, of how you do what you do. And so a lot of things that just don't really relate to uh, putting together your own personal portfolio. Right. And, and so, yeah, I mean, we've, we've spoken about this, that your, your fringe investments are like way out there, like venture, uh, you know, kind of like venture investments. And uh, when it comes to, to real estate, what, what's interesting to me about what you just described is I'm thinking if I'm, um, let's say, a doctor or a non-professional real estate investor, and I don't know anything about real estate. How, how can I approach investing in real estate that's not fringe? It's not as fringe as, let's say, uh, cryptocurrency investing or like way out there venture investing where that's, like, that's money that you don't necessarily expect back. But real estate is a different kind of an investment. It's not necessarily fringe. So if somebody's not an expert in it, and wants to get into it, what's it, what would be a good way or some, some good tips from you to them? Well, first of all, uh, I, just to clarify, I, I may be on the fringe, but I'm not in crypto. So that's, that would be, for me, that's beyond, that's beyond fringe from my understanding. I, I think one of my primary tenants is notwithstanding what I said before about, about investing in stuff that you don't really, that I didn't understand all that well and wanted to learn by. Um, I did understand what those investments were. I understood what they were trying to achieve. I understood what I was investing in. I will never invest in something that I can't understand. And, and, and I'm maybe a simple man, but I can't understand crypto. So I've, I've, not, I've not ventured there. But I think that, that that philosophy, I think, applies well to a neophyte a real estate investor. Real estate's really not that complicated. You, you, can, you can financially engineer it to make it more complicated. And I suggest the more things get financially engineered, the less attractive uh, they are because the reason people do that is they're not attractive just as they're on kind of their core value. To me, uh, you're investing in a hard asset, something you can touch and feel, something that has uh, intrinsic value, something that has value that you can actually measure in a variety of ways, all of which are pretty straightforward and that have an intrinsic value, presuming it's investment real estate, to a third party that wants to use that asset to extend and accelerate its own interest. So your ability to actually uh, look at each of those components and determine whether or not they make sense to you and whether or not the value proposition makes sense, and then look at that and the, and the, the basic return you're gonna get and compare it to what your alternatives are. If you're not a real estate person, uh, it'll take you a little bit to learn what the, the primary risk factors are. But if you study uh, a bit, it's not that complicated. And, and you can kind of figure out the volatility and variability of, of the risk of you getting that yield and compare it to other assets that you could deploy uh, your resources into. I think where real estate, to me, gets, where, where being kind of more experienced at it, is essential to making good decisions is when you get outside of, when you either get into something that is being uh, financially engineered, where essentially the return is a result of some machinations that are not typical, 
um, or you're getting into uh, almost an evolving or a new asset class. You know, I, I was early on into single family, distressed single family residential uh, investing, and I got involved with a group that was doing that in 2009. That was uh, a risk. And I think for a variety of reasons, I thought it was, it was worth taking. I got involved in, um, and I'm not sure if we had talked about this before, but involved with um, a group that was converting virgin cattle ranching lands into almond orchards. And for, for a variety of reasons, that was new at the time and, and a risk. But it was a, those were both uh, businesses that I could get my arms around understanding those aspects that I described but they're much higher in the risk spectrum because they hadn't really been done before. And so it's a little bit of a, of a, of a long-winded answer to basically say, I don't think real estate is that complicated to understand if you just focus on the fundamentals. And then, and then it's, it's pretty natural and seamless to compare that to your other alternatives, the other asset classes where you can deploy your, your capital. Right. Right. Yeah. Thank you for that. That, um, that's very clarifying. And just for me to clarify, when I mentioned crypto, I was thinking I got into crypto um, back in like 20, 2013. And I, I'm just letting, I'm just letting it ride. It was, it was, you know, it was like, just like a tiny little bit of money. Um, I don't really understand it. And I just played it like, a, you know, like a gamble, but um, yeah, it's been interesting to kind of watch that. And the more complicated it gets, the further away I stay. It just, it, though, to your point, like I just, you know, I have my two or three Bitcoins or whatever, and I just watch them like fly up and down, um, let, you know, let them do their thing. Um, but, you know, we did speak about the Ahmed Orchard, and we also spoke about how that investment for you was long term. And if you could um, hold that forever, because it was, you know, it was producing at some point, it was producing good returns for you. Um, but then if I'm not mistaken, that ended up selling. And is that how you came into our sphere of alpha investing? Is that right? Indirectly, I would say. I, I maybe, and that's, that's not how I came to know you guys, but that's how um, I came to think about what you do uh, differently than I might have had it not been through you know, some prior experiences. And so I just, several investments that I've made over the last 10 years in kind of this, you know, quasi cutting edge in these quasi cutting edge areas, uh, ultimately, um, proved out the theories, uh, proved out and they were successful and they generated great cash flow, which was the reason that I was investing to begin with was to generate some long-term, um, cash flow. But because they became as successful as they did, uh, the general partners incentives, um, are to make sure it can hit all of the uh, prescribed hurdles it needs to to um, to optimize the investment for both the investors and for themselves. And oftentimes, that will motivate um, a disposition earlier than than you would have hoped as an investor. And so that that has happened to me now several times over the past decade. And while it's great to have a, a nice exit um, and and a great return, a nice multiple, um, now you have to reinvest money that you had intended to be um, parked for, for the long term. And so um, as I started to look at other alternatives to try to get to what I was after, uh, the alternative is to directly invest yourself where you control the ultimate uh, decision. That's a whole different challenge. Um, and as I started looking at what Alpha um, was doing, it occurred to me um, let me back up one second. So, so what I started to do with this, uh, this cash that I was getting from these other investments was essentially short-term bonds. And I created ladders with my financial advisor to ensure that I always had some liquidity to invest as I saw, but I was getting, um, you know, short-term, not great, but short-term returns, you know, through a kind of this laddering concept. And so as I started to look at um, alpha, it kind of occurred to me that I could do the same thing over the long haul um, on the equity side um, and do it in an area that I really understood. So as, you know, maybe just to give you kind of an example of, of how I've done that to date, I'm not sure how many uh, investments have you guys, how many sponsored investments have you guys done to this point? So right now we have investments in 40 different properties across 18 states with nine different sponsor partners. Okay. 
So out of those 40, I've probably done seven or eight um, of them. And I probably haven't looked at all 40 because I came in, you know, there's, there's been periods where I haven't been able to engage as fully. So let's just say, you know, 35 of them I've looked at, I've invested in 20% of them. So I personally have diversified the stuff that I'm interested in investing in, whether it's uh, geographically, product type, uh, risk profile, sponsor, whatever. I've got my own kind of filter for doing that. And, and I've invested in, you know, a handful of these and each one of them, you know, and, and probably every six months or so. And so I've essentially created the same ladder. So even though each one of those has maybe a five to seven year time horizon, they'll be cycling in and out. So I'll, I'll, I'll be able to essentially create a fairly consistent cash flow stream as I aggregate those. And if one of them sells, I can redeploy the capital back and kind of continue to build. And so I'm not sure that everybody would look at it uh, that way. Uh, but for me, it's a unique, I, I don't, there's not another way for me to do that other than maybe investing in a bunch of public REITs. And investing in a public uh, real estate investment trust is different than investing in um, private partnerships with single assets. And so I, I just found it kind of unique and refreshing because it gives me a chance to underwrite and invest in just the things I want to, almost like I'm picking individual stocks uh, based on my own interest preferences and background, uh, but also to sequence it in a way that I can somewhat control the cash flow. So that's, that's how I think about, that's how I'm thinking about Alpha right now. So Jim, you're a professional real estate investor and not everyone in our network, you know, meets that definition. But when you're looking at some of the projects that we're sharing, you know, what are the things that kind of jump out to you in terms of, you know, what you start evaluating first, whether it be the sponsor and their experience, or if you just kind of jump into underwriting the process or the pro property, excuse me, or the submarket, you know, what, what is your internal underwriting process look like as a you know, current and former professional real estate investor? Um, great question. So I will do my standard process is I will do a cursory review of an offering memorandum and determine if, if it just, if it interests me and it's hard to tell you exactly what all those characteristics are, but um, for me over time, it's, it, you know, sponsorship for sure. The quality of the sponsor to the extent I have the ability to understand the product and the market, um, you know, quickly kind of um, summarize that. And then obviously uh, returns, uh, incentives, leverage. So there's a lot of, so I'll just, I have a quick kind of filter that, you know, it'll take me a half an hour, 45 minutes to review. And then if I'm, if I'm interested, then I'll dig in a lot deeper. So taking alpha as an example, if I get to that next level, I will look at all the due, the due diligence materials that are provided um, through the sponsor. I'll listen to those uh, sponsor calls. Um, oftentimes, I already know something about the product or the market. I may look at some external um, resources, but what I, what I don't do is just look at the yield, the uh, projected yield, and make a decision based on that because um, I've just learned over time that there's not necessarily a, a um, pro rata relationship between the level of the yield and the level of the risk. Um, and so I want to, if, if something is going to, you know, in, in the second year be producing 11 or 12% cash on cash return in a market uh, where you're just not seeing that anywhere else, um, there's a reason for that. There's, a, there's an embedded risk that you have to be willing to accept as an investor. Um, it's just, at least at the point we are in the market cycle, I have seen very few deals that are, you know, kind of um, off market source that'll allow that to happen. Um, and so I just dig into really understanding the fundamentals of the investment and how uh, they're solving to get to that yield level that's uh, being projected and determine whether I buy it. I also um, typically like to understand uh, why the seller is selling. In a market like this, oftentimes that's because we're, we, we, it's just such a frothy market that a seller will just determine, I, I can't imagine getting better than this and I'm gonna get the best value I can get, so now's the time. 
um, if that's the case, then it's just a question of whether or not uh, uh, you believe that you can stomach that, that price. But oftentimes there's other reasons. And so I always like to understand that as best I can. And, and you know, you may not get the, you might not get 100% of the um, real story, but if you probe a little bit, you can get a better sense for it. So I would just say that um, I have this kind of um, umbrella filter. If I'm interested, I dig in and I keep asking questions and I'm almost looking to be convinced along the way not to invest. Um, and then ultimately, if I get through uh, my various concerns and doubts and feel like my, they have been adequately addressed, then I invest. It's kind of that basic. Yeah. I, I actually have a question. Just want to dig in a little bit more on why the seller is um, is selling because sometimes you have an institutional seller, like a big institutional seller that we had on a recent uh, multifamily um, project that we did, and then other times it's it's you know slightly smaller um, sellers. And is it you know the an institution like a large, large one institutional investor will have different targets and they might not want to squeeze every last dollar out of that sale. So um, can, can you talk a little bit about disposition strategy for a very large in, investor and whether it does indicate market sentiment or if it's something to be evaluated uh, with, a, you know, with a grain of salt as it relates to market timing? Yeah, no, I... Absolutely. I think for sure institutional investors have a variety of reasons why they uh, dispose of assets. Um, I would say it is um, not typical that, that they're doing it because they're optimizing. And when I talk about large institutional investors, I'm talking about public REITs. I'm talking about multi-billion dollar asset aggregators. And while, while there are maybe some private equity funds that would just be trying to call the top of the market and sell, generally it's because there's been a strategic shift or a reallocation. And, and, and so most uh, institutional investors have a strategy and a niche they're focused on. And your tactics within that niche will uh, ultimately evolve as your strategy continues to evolve. So you could, you could see an institutional investor say, read that um, at, at one phase of its growth, it is bulking up. It has to get to a, a certain size in order to get to um, a certain valuation that will allow it to, to sell equity in order to continue to grow. And once they get to that point, um, there's more scrutiny. And the objective is to narrow the focus, become you know, more focused and an expert in specific areas. So you might, you might then reorient to urban cores or to the coasts or to a certain class of product type. And a lot of the assets that you acquired on the way up no longer fit. And, and so the objective is to get fair value, but as importantly, uh, the, um, the pace at which you can do that is pretty important. You need certainty of performance on the other side. Uh, and you need to be able to do this stuff Quickly, because you're not just doing one. You're 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 moving. You're shifting a whole portfolio, uh, and so you want to do business with people you trust can close. And so, it isn't the number one priority that uh, you get the top dollar necessarily. So that's a generic answer, but that's that's generally um, what I've seen with uh, larger institutions. So when I talk about you know why is a seller selling, oftentimes that's the reason. Um, other times it may not be. It may be something. Um, different where it is an individual asset holder. I think you guys had one recently that I invested in that was kind of more of a distressed situation. And the sponsor that you brought in had more expertise than the seller. And, and so that, anyway, that story held together well for me. So would so it's interesting because you you said like the story. Um, and I always I always find that really fascinating because yes, it's an investment. Uh, of course, and and we're looking at analytics, and everyone should be looking at the numbers when when putting together any kind of a portfolio. But so much of this is the story and a business plan and the people behind it. So it's it's still like people. There's just like when I worked in in a hedge fund when I worked in the public markets. Uh, yes, it's numbers, but it's also very much about psychology, and that's what moves anything. And so. 
to me, as I, as I learned more and became more involved in the real estate side of investing, I really found that the relationship uh, aspect of real estate was paramount. Um, it's, it's huge. Like who the people are is even more important than in, in public markets, even though you might have one or two behemoths that can literally move the markets. But anyway, like the story, the business plan, the people, the relationships seems to me to be a, an extremely important part of real estate investing. Absolutely. It's all about trust, you know, and, and, um, and, and I, that's not just real estate. It, it's pretty much anything you invest in. And, you know, that, that doesn't, mean so it's a balance it, it's it's clearly a balance um because both sides have objectives that are not mutually exclusive um but you're not on the same side of the table you know and so i'm um, doing business with people that care about on both sides their long-term reputation um their ability to uh, do business together uh in the future as well as do business with uh, people within each other's networks is huge. And, and so, yeah, you just find, uh, and I have found this for sure in my career, that your reputation has a long tail, a really long tail. And uh, you just, you have to constantly be aware of that uh, in, in how you conduct yourself and how you choose who you do business with. Um, yeah, when I, I didn't, when I said stories, it didn't, I didn't mean it in a way that uh, kind of negate the need to have uh, legitimate, substantiable uh, data and intelligence. Um, but you do have to get comfortable with uh, the why, and and you're not going to get there uh, exclusively with numbers. Yeah, of course, no, and and that was that to, at least to me it was fully understood that there's the substantive part and the analytics. And also very much the, the story portion, because mm -hmm. that goes into, can a sponsor do what they say they're going to do? And exactly. are they the right person? And so that's part of that story in that, in that relationship building. Um, and along these lines, I'm curious, because this, like you said, was a lesson that you learned in, um, in your career. Um, are there any other, I'm curious to know any other big lessons that you've learned in business um, so just to, to shift a little bit more into what you've learned building a business, you know, as an entrepreneur, we talked about that a little bit, but you went from entrepreneur to something also like very large and public market. Um, what are some, what are some of the lessons about building a business that, that you learned? This, this isn't um, clearly uh, is pretty obvious, not rocket science. Um, it just, it, it, it just comes back to the people you know, at a kind of a really high level, uh, do you have the right people in the right places at the right time? I mean, if I think back to the Alexandria experience, we were growing very quickly, um, but we were growing uh, nationally. And so managing that from the West Coast was a challenge. Not, and, and even if you, you know, were Superman and, and you could, you actually had the energy and stamina to do all that, uh, you don't have the network. You don't have the relationships that we were just talking about. And so most essential for us, and I found this in all the other uh, investment I've done outside the real estate realm as well, was getting the, those right people in place at the right time. It's, it, it's I mean, that's, that's a key piece of it too. You, you can have the right person, but if you're not ready for them or they're, or, or they're not ready for it, you're going to create, uh, you know, more uh, stress um, and tension than if you didn't do anything. So, uh, anyway, get so for for me, it has. It, it, I guess what I've I've learned over the years is that um, execution is huge. It's critical, and operational efficiency and excellence is essential. Um, but it just does not happen if you don't have the right people and you don't have a culture that is pretty well understood and defined within which you decide whether you can embed those folks. And I, and I will say that at the outset, I, I didn't fully understand that. That wasn't, you know, I, I just, it, it, it was much more, I'm very analytical anyway, but I was just much more inclined that way. Understand a market, go and get it. There's just a whole soft piece to growing an organization that if you don't get right, you will just be very frustrated. 
Um, and I, and I, even in the investments, and I, I, I talked to a, a, a college class a couple of years ago um, on kind of my uh, business philosophy and investing philosophy. And it made me, it forced me to actually go back and figure out why I do what I do or have done what I've done. And so I looked back at all the investments that I had been involved in over the past decade to find out what were the, were the common threads to them, to the ones that succeeded and the ones that didn't succeed. And, and I kind of, there, there were kind of these core tenets that came out of that, you know, and first and foremost was the people. If, if, if the, if the company um, uh, was run by people with integrity and character and honorable purpose, uh, you had a good shot of success. There's some things I'll talk about in a moment here that are essential as well. But I also found, interestingly, that uh, teams um, did better for me than individuals. So, it's, so if, if you had a choice between a team that had those characteristics, integrity, honorable purpose, and character versus an individual, you had better chance of being successful with the team. And I think that gets back to humility and complementary skill sets and collaboration and all that stuff. Uh, secondly, that, that team has a high level of competence. Um, and then uh, and maybe obviously that uh, it has to be a compelling idea or a business plan that, that for me that actually matters and can have some impact. Um, not just kind of a me too thing that somebody's already done that you're just uh, trying to get on the back of. And then ultimately something that, as I mentioned at the outset, that I could, I could learn from because if, if I didn't, if I wasn't engaged and interested and able to learn that I wouldn't be engaged in the investment. And then to the extent I have anything to add a value that might help, it wouldn't happen because I wouldn't be engaged. So I found that it, that in the investments that I had that, that, that all four of those characteristics were strong. It did well as, as they fell off, I did worse and worse. And and so it kind of gets back to your, your primary, your original question about building a business. It's, it's, uh, so it's, it, that's, those things were, were critical. And what I learned in, in um, kind of just in my experience of building business, but then I started to invest, um, they just uh, became expressed more clearly and frequently because I was seeing it happen over and over again versus just in my own business. It's such wisdom. I, I think that that's like one of my favorite words and, and you really, um, you really embody that in, in everything that you've done. And I wanted to ask you one, one last question and you, you covered this a little bit, I think, how have your personal values um, and even some of your goals, how have those evolved for you through the life cycle of your career? And you mentioned at the beginning of uh, that you left Alexandria early. Uh, but by no means have you, you know, retired to an island. Uh, you're very active. You're doing a lot like you're, you know, quote unquote working. So I'm, I'm curious how your personal values and goals have evolved in your career and how the life that you live today, how you live that life, still uh, investing and learning and growing, um, but, but living a very fulfilling life. Wow. That's, a, that's the big question. So I, I, I entered an industry at a time during a generation that just had a whole different way of valuing success. I, I was a former athlete. Most of the people that were in the commercial real estate industry when I started were, there was a lot of those kind of type A former athletes. And we all, there was a scoreboard and it was pretty simple. It was how much money you made. And, and actually in the brokerage, I don't know how it's done today, but back then, you actually knew how much everybody made because the manager would publish it, you know, every quarter. And so that's, it was that, that scoreboard was binary and um, obvious and, and objective. And so what I think what happened to me and to probably many others is that, that the emphasis there uh, was substantially outsized relative to what it should have been. And, and so, um, you know, I'm, I'm from a generation that was, um, at least in the world I was in, it was focused on, on accumulation and aggregation without necessarily a whole lot of thought as to why. You know, maybe it was to, to have, you know, more material wealth than you would have imagined or to, to expend it on um, things. And so I think as, 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 um, as I've evolved 
that over time it's become so obvious and clear that that's not very fulfilling, that there, that there has to be a reason that you do that. And um, I don't subscribe to this kind of halftime theory, which is that, that you end up, you spend all your time, you get to a certain point in your life, and then you kind of just reverse gears completely and, and then um, try to figure out how to have an impact. And I think that um, that was a popular theory back then, actually. And I just don't think that happens. It's not natural. It's an evolution. And so, so what I have, what I, I guess what I realized during the process of, of building, of being a part of building Alexandria and then moving into this next phase of my life is where I'm really most uh, passionate is in, in kind of working with the next generation. And, but I don't think about it in a kind of a classic mentoring way that, that I've read about and heard about. I, I really, I, I feel like I get more out of those relationships than I put into them. So there's kind of this, I call mutual mentoring that happens that just invigorates me. And so that's, so almost everything, um, we haven't really talked at all about kind of the specific investments I've made, but if I look at, at those, the, the people I talked about, the, the, the having to, you know, be either teams or people of integrity, character, and purpose, they're almost always younger than me. And so there's just a, a, um, a kind of re-energizing and, and a picking this curiosity that I have about so much that's, that's nourished by that um, experience. So I, that's, so I would say that's how I've evolved. And now, you know, everything I'm doing naturally has an element of desired impact. And, and you know, I'm not, believe me, I, I don't want to overstate uh, what I'm doing here, but uh, if, if I don't feel like, it, like there's any meaning or that it matters, I just don't do it anymore. And, and so there's just a self-awareness, I guess, that you get uh, with age and, and it's part of a natural evolution and, and where it really, I have four kids, they're all out of the house, but they're all millennials. And so I, I have such a connection to that next generation um, anyway. And so then, it is, so so then, when you do what I did, so I'm 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 now on. I I haven't looked recently, but between um, public company, non-public company, for-profit, non-profit, ministry, I'm on probably a dozen different boards. But every one of them, I'm actually really involved with the company. I'm not, you know, it's not a. I have very few passive investments. And so the tension I have is is about this kind of life balance thing that I think a lot of us have, no matter how we're doing, what we're doing. I guess my theory there is that if you've heard maybe a lot of my, my uh, bloviating about, about the spectrum, but I think there's a spectrum. I think I am a, I'm a planner. I'm a strategy guy. I'm a process guy. Uh, but I also know that my next breath is not promised. I mean, I truly believe that. And so it's my natural inclination to orient towards being overstructured and overplanned. And so my, my constant effort is to try to stay in the moment, try to be in the moment, um, because that's hard for me. It's much easier for me to go down this um, other, other pathway. So I think just recognizing that forces me to have a balance that would be easy for me not to have um, if, if, um, if all I thought about was planning for the future. Um, because as I said, uh, who knows, <laughs> uh, this could be it. So. Anyway, that's a long-winded uh, uh, description of, of uh, my own evolution in this realm, and it's and it's, it'll. I, if you ask me five years from now, I'm sure it'll be different. Yeah, I, I'm sure. I'm sure it will. Other than the fact that you'll still be targeting meaning and purpose, I think that when you get into the realm of that self-awareness, you don't go back because, as you've you know, you can tell that it that meaning it's like it just imbues you and so you seek that meaning out so if anything i would venture to say that that'll still be prevalent for you and it's amazing that you're on a dozen boards and you give them time and i think one of the things that really um stands out for me is that the planning part you know is we should all be planning like we should all be planning for our future and you've found the way to do that and still be very present and be in the moment and live your life today, which is something really important. Um, and it's, it's also why Dan, Daniel and I started the podcast was to talk about that. How do you plan for the future, but live and also live today, not but and, and live today. So I think your description pretty much encompassed all of that. 
And I, and I just, just to clarify too, one last thing is the board thing, that's not like a goal and an objective. And I, I actually don't even, and I don't mean to say it in a way to, to try to impress, because I don't think, see it that way at all. It's, it's, most of those are just the best way for me to engage in, you know, in none of those situations am I needed. <laughs> it, 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 it forces me to have a level of accountability to these things because um, um, absent that, that commitment, you know, I would just, I would probably, my time would flow elsewhere. And so um, uh, I just, well, just want to clarify that that's, that's not an objective. It, it turns out to be more of a mechanism to, to participate and rather than an objective. Yeah. Oh no, that's understood. And I, I understand that because you said like coming from the generation that, that you came from, that was all, it was all quantitative. So I, I, I completely, I completely understand that. You know, I know that we're we're running up on our time. So, Daniel, is there anything that um, that you wanted to maybe close up with with Jim? Otherwise, this has been such a wonderful conversation, Jim. Really, thank you so much for everything that you've brought here today. Yeah, absolutely. Thank you so much, Jim. I, I think for a lot of the people on our network who are either new to real estate investing or you know are just kind of starting their journey. You know, hearing your story, I think, provides them with a good amount of guidance and just you know, some things to think about as, as they plan for their, their futures, whether it be you know, investment or otherwise. And so, yeah, we're, we're very appreciative for you taking the time with us today. Oh, it's been a pleasure. Thank you, guys. All right. Thank you. Thanks for tuning in to Real Wealth, Real Health. We hope that you've enjoyed today's episode and found it both informative and insightful. We welcome all your questions and your feedback about today's episode, and especially we welcome your questions about specific topics that you would like us to cover. So shoot us an email at podcast at alphai.com. And if you have a moment, we really appreciate ratings and reviews as it helps us grow our online community and our interactions with you. And we'll also be linking to a number of relevant articles on topics that we might have touched on during our conversations. Some of them are broad, some of them are technical, but we're always aiming to provide information that helps you better understand the mechanics of building this healthy financial foundation, especially if you're looking to do this with real estate. This podcast is a part of the C-Suite Radio Network. For more top business podcasts, visit c-suiteradio.com.